something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, it's nearly the the end of the year. We've, we've got this show and our Christmas special coming up, or holiday special. Uh, it's always difficult to use that term holiday special without thinking about Star Wars and no, that, that's just a disaster. So uh, let's just get on with things and um, bring in John Berger because I know I, I just heard that there. He's a little bit of a snigger because I know I know you know about the holiday special <laughs> <laughs> i try to stay quiet until the introduction you know just just out of you know that, that kind of radio professional courtesy you, you tripped me on that one <laughs> bad mark oh <laughs> uh, how you doing well you know all fat and happy from uh, american thanksgiving and going down to texas for a weekend uh, yeah yeah i forgot you'd been down to texas for a while where everything is about three times the size of everything else <laughs> including the state big honking state the thing they don't have down there that's three times bigger than everything else are mountains because it's flat yeah it is a bit yeah it's a bit like being in norfolk over here it's there's nothing uh, Alan Taylor Shearer, uh, who you you know of, he's from um, uh, Yorkshire, and Yorkshire is full of hills. He moved to Norfolk, and uh, occasionally he goes back to Yorkshire, and he's like, "Oh man, I've forgotten how to do hill starts," you know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I understand you've uh, had a few changes with your well not so much your podcast but with your website and everything yeah i finally brought it out in the 1990s <laughs> i mean come on i had audio clips there that were from real audio really i've been meaning to do that for a long time and i finally decided you know what well actually it was because i started a new job and i just from previous experience i knew i couldn't get access to anything for like five to six weeks and i knew it my management knew it they're just like oh yeah do whatever you want until we get your access all settled out so I figured now's a good time to work on the new website. So, you know, spiced it all up, made it all HTML5, and got rid of all the old crap that required old software. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with it. Still needs to make some changes to it, but uh, a lot nicer than it was before. And you've also, when I say you haven't made any changes to the podcast, you've kind of changed the name a little bit. Well, you know, the widescreen.org movie and media podcast. Okay, it's descriptive. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Yeah, not- Certainly not marketable. So I just, <laughs> I looked around. I was like, well, widescreen.org com is no longer around. Nobody else does any podcast called widescreen. So it's like, okay, I'm the widescreen podcast. And if some smart ass comes around and say, oh, yeah, I decided to call my podcast that. Fine. It's a widescreen.org podcast. <laughs> Sucks to be you. You can't take that from me. It's mine. So how many shows you've done now? Currently in the process of doing show number 218. Wow. And you've been doing that quite a while now, haven't you? 10 years. Really? 10 years. Yep. The first one was in uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. Just about getting there. Thank you, Mr. Vobes, for getting me involved in this. Yeah, you can thank Mr. Vobes for a lot of people getting involved in podcasting. <laughs> Not surprising. Where can people find you? Widescreen.org. As easy as that. Easy as that. It's, a, it's been around for 20 years. I wouldn't be surprised if some of our listeners have already heard of it. It got to a point where... Even Universal Studios was directing people to my site when they needed information about those dreaded black bars on the top and bottom of your screen. But, you know, someone forwarded to me saying that, you know, yeah, Universal said, yeah, go to widescreen.org if you want information. It's like, wow, okay then, I'll take that. So you're sending them back the same information, but say, ask for Babs, yeah? Say, what? 
<laughs> I knew that would get you. Yeah. Blues Brothers. Oh, man. I've never seen it. Oh, wow. At the end of Blues Brothers, there's a sign that says something about Universal Tours, blah, blah, blah. Ask for Babs. Like the pop culture reference now. <laughs> Oh, you've heard it before and wondered what it was about. Yeah, I mean, I've, I know lots of the more popular things from Blues Brothers. I've just never sat and actually watched it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering how many people have actually gone to Universal Studios and say, can I speak to Babs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I would assume that their security guards or whatever are trained for that kind of question. I would hope. <laughs> I'll have to try that sometime, you know. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> and I want someone else to be recording it. <laughs> So this is what this is show number three of this season mm-hmm. and we're in our fourth season so we've been wow even at this for four years yeah four years doesn't seem that long and garbage pod has been going since december 2011 we're so. doing a lot of that though lately what's going on with that um tgp nominal fair enough <laughs> I am uh, doing a few things with it. I've got some ideas for stuff. I'm hoping to get some musicians in to do a, a kind of like a Skype session and things like that. So that could be interesting. And uh, yeah, see how we go. Just as long as we do our annual Eurovision show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> fun. Do that. that is fun. <laughs> and see we're it. one and one here. Scores tied. <laughs> Yeah, I just love seeing how badly we do on that because. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it just shows how bad everybody else's musical tastes are compared to ours. <laughs> <laughs> it just shows to me that we have absolutely no clue what's going on in Europe, to be honest. Well, you know, 2016 was a really good one. Yeah, it was a bit lousy this year, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I still can't believe that one of the guys that was in Eurovision, Slavko, for uh, Montenegro, uh, was in our X Factor, the UK X Factor. <laughs> As a hey, com- good for him. He didn't get very far, but he got there because Louis Walsh, one of the uh, judges who's responsible for uh, quite a lot of the the boy bands in the UK industry, he was at Eurovision and he was looking for talent. (laughs) And he basically, after the show, said, come to the UK, apply to go on X Factor. I think you could make it. And uh, he did apply and he did get on the show. So, (laughs) Well, uh, I can't remember exactly which one it was. One of them was on... the American X Factor, I think. Uh, or what, one of those talent shows over here. Pretty much most of them are on some version of either, you know, Pop Idol or The Voice or most of those kind of shows. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk to you about was we've we've had some feedback recently, haven't we? Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a message on, um, on Facebook and it was from uh, a fellow podcaster, actually, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Michael Lingelfelter from uh, Chicago and he got in touch with us to say great show guys always always a good start <laughs> I love watching the TV show Ancient Aliens and they all believe that aliens have not only been here before but helped shape our history it's hard to think that we are alone and I would like to know what you guys think thanks Mike well John <laughs> See, I I could make a comment about our current political climate over here in the U.S. I will refrain from doing that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Whether they visited us or not, I have no idea. I I know some people who make me seriously think that aliens have visited this planet. Otherwise, like, I'm sure the life is out there. 
Uh, if, if you look at some of the scriptures and things from some of our ancient civilizations, they, you know, there are pictures of some kind of flying craft and that kind of yeah. thing. I was meant to look up the name of it, actually. Uh, I put up a thing on our Facebook page uh, about a manuscript from Romania that's 500 years old. And in this manuscript, it shows you the basis for a three-stage rocket okay from 500 years ago very similar to the, the drawings for uh, a saturn 5 it kind of freaked me out a little bit <laughs> to me it's just you look at how many galaxies are out there there's estimated to be something like a hundred billion galaxies yeah and out of all those galaxies how many habitable stars are habitable? How many stars are there in each galaxy? Mm -hmm. And even if just a teeny, teeny, teeny fraction of a percent of those stars had a planet around them that is habitable, yeah, we're still talking countless billions of planets out there. We're the only life in this universe? No, really? No way. There's uh, not I, a chance. I know they say that everything lined up perfectly for us to have the life that we've got on Earth, and that was fluke. Fluke says to me, not impossible, but probable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's it's like tossing a coin. How yeah. many times will it come up at the, the way you want it to be? It's infinite. But, but that's also life as we know it, just because this is how we know life, carbon-based and all that, doesn't mean we're the only ones. Even here in our own planet, we have arsenic-based life forms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could, you might argue that we already have alien life here on the planet. Mm. You look at these creatures that are on the bottom of the seabeds. Well, not on the bottom of the seabeds, but in, right. you know, deep waters where, you know, the water pressure must be something chronic. So for them to be able to survive in those conditions, it's alien, almost. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things on this planet that we can't explain because we haven't researched into it. I, I can't remember what percentage of the sea we have actually explored, but I know it's it's quite small. Mm. So it's something like 10% or something like that. Yeah. Even according to NASA's own estimates, just in this galaxy alone, there are approximately 1 billion planets roughly the size of Earth in the habitable zone for stars. Mm -hmm. 1 billion here. And there's more and more evidence being shown that probably the seeds of life were deposited from passing comets. Mm -hmm. we're, we're ticking off a lot of religious people right now, but just saying. We're certainly not the only solar system that has comets. So there could very well be another planet out there in our own galaxy that is in a habitable zone, mm -hmm. that has water, mm -hmm. that had a comet pass by it, and might have less evolved life than we have here, might have more evolved. The thing is, absence of evidence does not equal evidence of absence. And that's what people seem to think. We haven't found it yet, therefore it's not out there. No, we haven't found it yet, therefore we haven't found it yet. That's so very true. I mean, it's the same with most of the bits and pieces that are going on in science. Like we keep going on about the naysayers saying, nope, that doesn't exist because because it goes against everything that we know. That's because as that's so everything. everything that we know is all there is to know out there. Yeah, that's the whole point of science. Yeah, finding things that we don't know. Just statistically speaking, with everything that is out there—not even so much the galaxy, but just the universe—with the number of galaxies out there, there's no way in hell. There is no way that we are the only life forms in the universe. 
no chance. Mm-hmm. If they are far out, we haven't got the ability to get there. And any the other way yet. around, they haven't had the ability to get here. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, any intelligent life in the galaxy would just look at us and say, <laughs> keep going. Especially in the present climate. So I, I, I think that probably answers Mike's question. I think so. <laughs> I think Mike was just feeding that to us anyway. I think he knows what we think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can listen to, to Mike as part of the Britain Yankee podcast. If you like your beer, that's the one to go to. Um, we've had dealings with them in the past. Uh, we've had dealings with them in the past. One of my co-hosts from the Garbage Pod uh, just happened to be in Chicago, and uh, I pointed him in the direction of the Britain Yankee, and... Uh, yeah, they had a few things to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so like Mike, if you want to get in touch with us, here's what you need to do. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. So, John, shall what? we get on with the rest of the show? Oh, surely. And don't call me Shirley. There um, you go. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back from this break, we're going to go into all things space-related. Whiskey Zero, Papa Delta, W Zero PD. Zero Papa Delta got you loud and clear. As far as I can remember, I've been fascinated with space. So many stars and planets and galaxies and things that work together perfectly somehow. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the beaches of Earth. How enormous that is. This is November Alpha 1, Sierra Sierra, the International Space Station, over. The more technical we get about space exploration, the better we can find ways to overcome the insanely large universe. And when you go to the open day here at Aztec, you see everything right in front of you. There are 12,000 of you to visit today. Come and see space with us. I'm an astronomy student, so I think about space all the time. My grandpa has seen the moon landing, and I've only read about it. The last 20 years, there happened so much. It is growing exponentially. I can see the contrast between what he has seen and what I get to do today is really cool. I like the test center. You're almost in space, standing in the test center. It is literally bringing space to Earth. Everything what is new and what I can observe as knowledge is so very interesting for me. There are so many activities that have to do with space and prototypes of satellites and scale models of the missions we have done that opens up a whole new world. You can touch it. It's here, it's live, it's, it's there. Very inspiring. 
anybody who even has a slight interest in technology can find what they want to see at the open day. It's, it's so, so amazing. So, and I feel happy when I'm being here with Lisa. It was amazing to do this with my grandpa. See actual astronauts in real life and see all those things we talk about all the time. It's really cool. And now we have even more to talk about because we have learned new things. This is TGP Nominal. I've been catching up with some podcasts lately and uh, I've, I've listened to the World Space Week edition of Space Boffins. They had an interview with someone I look up to and that took place at a special event. Have a listen to this. Well, um, I never expected to be talking to a stormtrooper, at least uh, not at the European Space Agency anyway, especially when that stormtrooper is, in fact, Matt Taylor, well known to everybody as the project scientist for the Rosetta mission. Matt, you've taken off your helmet, thankfully. It's not to see the glasses and the beard above a yeah, white, quite squeaky yeah, stormtrooper outfit. Why are you wearing this? I ask myself that when <laughs> it gets too warm, because <laughs> uh, now the sun's come out, it's actually quite, uh, it's quite horrible. It is very warm. This, it's the Aztec Open Day. We invite everyone to come in and see what we're doing. Last year and the year before, I gave a Rosetta talk to the uh, to the public. I didn't think I was going to do that, but I thought it was a good idea because there'd been a bit of PR activity because I wore this outfit at work, you know, like you do. And um, they suddenly started saying, oh, we'll, we'll advertise that as kind of part of the open day. And I thought, well, I'll get part of the costume club, the Dutch garrison, the part of the 501st garrison. These are this, uh, it's a charity uh, organisation that dress up in the authentic gear, as, you know, and it takes a lot of effort and money to do this. And I'm a member of that club now. Actually, there's a story there with respect to Rosetta, but I won't go into it. But <laughs> bottom line is, we got the Dutch garrison to come in, and I was coming as one of them. I was coming as a Dutch garrison, but then I also gave this talk, and frankly, putting this on and taking it off is not that easy. So uh, We don't want to be there for that. Because This outfit, you, we've talked about this, uh, I've talked about this with you before. It's got some authenticity to it. This yeah. is not just any old Stormtrooper outfit. Yeah, there's uh, there's one particular company in the UK up near Manchester, RS Props. They they have a lineage to the original armor. So this has got bumps and wiggles that are originally on one of the, the New Hope armor sets. So that's why you know it's kind of the authentic one, and why it's actually really uncomfortable because it was designed to be worn for 20 minutes shooting or something like that, not walking around. So yeah, I know why why we lost against the rebels now <laughs> well, just just so you're aware I have already put on social media that Issa is building a Death Star because of all yeah, this gonna, yeah well this is it and then I showed in my talk uh, an imperial cruiser parked off the beach floating above the North Sea just for scale <laughs> Thank you very much. So, you look so uncomfortable today. Really I think we'll, we'll let you have a shower. Well, I'm, I'm good. No, I'm back on back on station now. Oh, I'll be brilliant. trooping again. Yeah, oh, and I think I just need to go and get a bite to eat <laughs> and see where my blaster's gone. <laughs> Matt Taylor, a Rosetta project scientist and part-time stormtrooper on patrol here at Aztec in the Netherlands. First of all, he makes being a rocket scientist really cool. <laughs> then he gets the mission he's been working on tattooed on his leg then I find out he's a real ale enthusiast and then to put the cherry on the cake he's a member of the 501st <laughs> the man is a legend <laughs> for geeks like us anyway 
We have got to get him on the show. <laughs> yes, we do. Make it so. <laughs> now, also on that episode, they talked to a guy called Franco Ogaro, who is the ESA Director of Technology and Head of STEC, or the European Space Research and Tech Centre. I wanted to give him a mention during this because in the interview they had with him, he made a statement. This is really cool. I've personally always gone for female names in my program so aurora iris i'm always a little bit uh, skeptical about acronyms <laughs> what can i say <laughs> a man after our own heart <laughs> <laughs> i just heard that piece and went i've got to mention that in the show yeah and this is why you have names like rosetta <laughs> because this guy doesn't like acronyms i like them already <laughs> Now, if you want to listen to the full interviews, just look up Space Boffins in the same device that you're listening into TGP Nominal, but remember to listen to the rest of the show first before you listen to that. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> Voyager 1, the only object in interstellar space. It's been flying for 40 years. It has to occasionally adjust its position so that it points back to Earth. It's been having to send out its little correctional bursts a bit longer than it normally does. So the thrusters, I guess you could say they're wearing out. Well, they've actually been able to use a set of four backup thrusters that have been dormant since 1980. So you figure they haven't been fired in all that time. It's been 37 years, and they decided they were going to test those thrusters to see if they could use that to extend its mission life for a couple of years. Chris Jones was part of a team who looked at various different options to predict how the spacecraft would respond to other scenarios and so forth. They decided to try to use these original thrusters, because these were the thrusters that actually helped to guide it when it was actually going around the various planets. Once that was done and it started heading off into interstellar space, they really didn't have any use for them. So those thrusters have been sitting dormant for 37 years. So they had to go back and look at the old get ready assembler code. Wow. Yes. <laughs> People who, who are old farts like us who have been in the computers for a long time are probably picking their jaws off the floor right now. And they ran a quick test to see if these old sleeping dormant thrusters would work. And sure enough, for only 10 millisecond pulses, all of them worked, which must have been really scary for them because it takes 19 hours and 35 minutes for any signal to come back. Do you imagine doing that? We could have just killed Voyager. We've now got to wait over 19 hours to figure this out. But they went ahead and it worked perfectly. Now by doing that, they can extend Voyager 1's life for two, maybe three years. Mm -hmm. Now the, the piece I was reading about it started off with, uh, if you've ever tried to start a car that's been sitting in a garage for decades, you might not expect the engines to respond. Yeah. <laughs> It's a similar thing, you know, it's been yeah, sitting dormant for, for years, and then it's like, yeah, come on. <laughs> but now they were so pleased with how it worked with Voyager 1, they're looking to try to do it with Voyager 2 as well. Yeah, I, I read that. Um, probably January they're going to be mm -hmm. uh, doing something with it. So. Now, granted, Voyager 2's thrusters aren't in as degraded a condition as 1, but... Hey, you know, if it works, they've got a contingency plan now. Which is really cool. I mean, this this has been news everywhere in the space community. I mean, everywhere I've looked and shows I've been watching and, and what have you, they've mentioned this. This is this is a big deal. And, and of course, what does Computer Geek Me focus on? Assembler! <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow, assembler, man. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could have been worse. It could have said COBOL. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of the languages I had to learn when I was at college, which is Oh, great. yeah. COBOL and Pascal. Oh, man, I love Pascal. Yes, I wish that never went away. That's all right. Pascal's fine, but yeah, COBOL is... Ugh. COBOL and Fortran. I learned those in college. If if you, All you'd have to do is refresh your COBOL, Man, you could make some serious money right now. Because mm-hmm. all the all those old co- COBOL programmers have either died or retired. And yet banks and so forth, they're still using it because, well, it works. But they need people to go in and fix old code and update it. <laughs> you could make a lot of money by learning COBOL. Yeah, just such a pain. <laughs> Environment division, procedural division, working storage division. Oh, kill me. (laughs) Always willing to up the stakes of an already difficult situation, Elon Musk has said that the first flight of the company's Falcon Heavy rocket will be used to send a Tesla Roadster into space. What is up with that? I, I, I read the headline on that, but not the details. Now, Musk first tweeted this idea out on the 1st of December, and the payload was actually confirmed on the 2nd of December. But the confirmation followed a bizarre exchange between the Verge and Elon Musk. After Musk tweeted the plan, they asked him to confirm that it was real. Musk replied first by email confirming that it was real, and then after The Verge published a story about the plan, Musk sent the response into their direct messages on Twitter saying it was totally made up. Now, we know that response was false because a person familiar with the with the matter told The Verge on the 2nd of December that the payload was in fact real. And this was the tweet that he actually sent out. The first Falcon Heavy's payload will be my Midnight Cherry Tesla Roadster playing Space Oddity. Reference to the famous David Bowie song, Destination Mars Orbit will be in deep space for a billion years or so if it doesn't blow up on ascent. <laughs> I have no idea what is going on with that. As, shall we say, eccentric as Elon Musk can be, mm-hmm. that just doesn't sound like his style. I don't know. I'm kind of leaning toward him saying, uh, yeah, that's not true, but I don't... Musk has spoken openly about the non-zero chance that the Falcon Heavy will explode during its first flight, and because of that, he once said he wanted to stick the silliest thing we can imagine on the top of the rocket. Mm. Now we know what he meant by that. I guess. It's unclear at the time of publishing whether SpaceX has received any necessary approvals for this plan. But then why deny it afterward? Was he drunk? <laughs> uh, that's what I was just thinking that. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Uh, I don't know. Didn't uh, Falcon Heavy get pushed out till next year? Yeah, it has. Um, as we mentioned last month, uh, it was due to go at the end of this month. And I said, yeah, that's going to be January. <laughs> and sure enough, that's right. it is. That's right, yep. <laughs> But, I remember that now. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, they've been putting this off since 2013, 2014, something like that. And in fairness, they've only put it off a month. Yeah. But hey, you know, space is hard. So We don't know anything else about the launch, apart from that it has been pushed back to January. No date has been confirmed. SpaceX also ultimately planned to recover all three stage cores that power the Falcon Heavy, just like it's done over the last year with the rocket booster stage of the Falcon 9s. It's unclear if the company will attempt to recover the boosters on its maiden launch. 
I doubt it. Right. I know that their one partner has said multiple times that they have confidence in what they do, and if they lose a satellite, okay, they'll build another one. Mm-hmm. Kind of surprised that I, I can't remember which company that was. Kind of surprised they're not having the you know being able to say yes, we were the first payload to go up there. Of course, it could also be the first payload from the Falcon Heavy to actually go up too, not necessarily uh, successfully. Because I, I know I, the Planetary Society wants to launch their um, the so, the sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the second version. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to launch that on the first launch of Falcon Heavy. And if something goes wrong, that's something that I think they would easily be able to recoup the costs for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they have got some. They must have some kind of insurance plan for it as well. I mean, I, I get the silliness of sending something up there that's not practical, but let's go under the assumption that it's successful. Why not actually utilize it then? Mm-hmm. Let's make a practical, low-risk item be the first payload. Which that would be ideal, sure. Because in the in the whole scope of things, that is fairly cheap. Mm-hmm. That's the whole idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, don't, don't make it some kind of mandatory communication satellite or something, but you know, something like the, those solar sails. Why not? Assuming a successful launch and deployment, I'd rather see something like that go up than uh, Tesla. That's for sure. Give me the Tesla. If you really want to get rid of it that badly, it's not like he doesn't have the money to have another one made. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first one off the line. That belongs in a museum, not out in space. Although, with absolutely, you know, or, or very, very little chance of any kind of, um, like, corrosive agents and so forth, I guess space is the ultimate museum, isn't it? Well, yeah. Complete vacuum. Well, obviously, we know about the hurricane that completely just decimated Puerto Rico, and we did get confirmation that the Arecibo satellite did get damaged. So there's been a lot of concern as to whether or not they were just going to finally scrap it or keep it. And the word finally came down, and they are keeping it. So they finally decided that uh, the National Science Foundation is the, that's the organization that actually owns the observatory. Uh, they supply about about $8 million of the $12 million annual budget, and they've been considering shutting it down so that they could funnel that money to other projects. But instead, they are going to keep it going because other partners, who they have not named, have come in to do most of the funding for it. It sustained about 4 to $8 million in damage during the hurricane, including that unit that hangs above it. That came crashing down. Mm-hmm. So that has to be replaced. Uh, and obviously, that was a a big concern thinking well if that's done and all the repair work that's going to be needed to the dish and so forth what's going to happen other agencies have come in and said we will do most of the funding keep it open under the new plan the agency will reduce its annual contribution from 8.2 million to about 2 million over the next five years so it is also committed to funding any repairs needed to restore it to its pre-hurricane condition. So what they decided to do was they conducted an environmental impact statement, considered other alternatives to the current plan. Now, apparently all of those options did include maintaining it in some way or another. So demolishing it or whatever was always considered to be an absolute last resort. But back in January, the NSF called for proposals from other companies and organizations and so forth to run the observatory and any partner that joined in would have to make up for those reduced funds so they did that and again a bunch of partners came in there is no statement as to who those partners are what kind of projects those partners will do i'm not quite sure why 
did be afraid of mentioning that, but nonetheless, regardless, the important thing is that the Arecibo Observatory is going to be fixed up and it's going to stay. And consider that it, it is one of the world's largest radio telescopes, it's been used to discover exoplanets and even organic molecules in galaxies that are millions of light years away. Of course, you know, then we've, we've got the more pop culturist things where, you know, contact, yeah. uh, golden eye, stuff like that. So it'd be nice to keep them around that way, too. But it's a 1,000 foot dish. The thing is huge. But obviously right now it is still working to a smaller degree. Uh, they've got it on low power mode. Obviously the priority is to get the island itself back up and running. Once they get Puerto Rico you know, as a country taken care of, then the NSF has said that we will fix Arecibo and we now have other partners to handle most of the funding. So it's staying. Well, my thoughts on that were that it couldn't be shut down because there's too many people that are involved with that project and you know all the different agencies and and what have you that use that facility mm-hmm. um something would have been done and obviously the community have got together and said well this facility is too precious to lose mm-hmm. and uh, like you said last time I and mean, during the the hurricane because it's almost like bunkers underneath people were actually going there as as a refuge so it, it also helps the community out in case of disasters and things so it's got multiple things that it, it's used for and it would be an absolute travesty for it to disappear so just well done to everyone to rally around and and, uh, keep it operational sure and I mean if that's really its annual budget 12 million for all the science we can get out of that that's not a lot of money it isn't really quite amazing actually when you think of it yeah, now it's just up to maintaining it. No, not not accounting the repairs, but once it was funded, it's not like it has to move. You know, it's not like one of those big satellite dishes that actually rotate and change angles and so forth. It kind of just sits there. Yeah, it's kind of like a big crater, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. With uh, the the, uh, the wire cross beams. Right. All the money that's being spent for rockets and so forth. We talk about something that's going to cost $12 million in a year. And it's like, ah, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> This is what science has become. That is shoestring budget, really, when you think about it. Yeah, and especially if, if you've now got multiple companies or organizations funding it, that's really not much. The more people, the merrier, to be honest, because they can do a lot more work with it. And if mm-hmm. everybody's got an interest in it, then uh, only more science can come from that. Yeah, you know, a, a thousand foot diameter. Come on, there's a lot of science that can be done with it's that. huge, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Well, as you know, I've I've got my wonderful little rocket here from Lego. Mm-hmm. Well, we've also mentioned that uh, Lego is coming out with the Women of NASA. Yeah. Which, uh, well, it was supposed to have Katherine Johnson in it as well, but it has Margaret Hamilton, Sally Ride, Nancy Grace Roman, and Mae Jemison on it. In the first 24 hours after it was released, it was Amazon's number one best-selling toy. It came out for a price of $25 U.S., obviously. Very quickly sold out on Amazon. For all the people out there who we've seen over the years that, that, you know, girls have no interest in science or things like that, this is one of those things you point to and say, oh, really? So it was originally pitched back in 2016 by Maya Weinstock, who's the deputy editor of MIT News. And apparently, obviously, Lego was impressed enough with it. Uh, they decided to go for it. And she even said that I wanted to provide kids with a play experience that would help them learn about these women in particular, uh, but also to help boys and girls know that women have been a part of NASA's history from the beginning, even though their work has often been overlooked or underappreciated. That's uh, 
putting it lightly. They, they were not able to get Katherine Johnson. Uh, if I remember correctly, they just simply couldn't get the permissions in time or they didn't know how to get it, and they just couldn't do it. I guess you can't do much on that, but obviously Margaret Hamilton with her iconic photo of books, uh, Mae Jemison and Sally Ride both dealing with the space shuttle. No, it's it's a cool little set. I must admit, I managed to grab one for my 10-year-old daughter. One thing that we've been doing the last few weeks, I got an app that tells us where the space station is oh, relative yeah. to us. Yeah. And, well, you've seen the posts on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it is so cool that we first caught it like a, a month or two ago, I guess, and my 10-year-old daughter went nuts. She thought it was amazing and started talking about the space shuttle she wanted to see pictures of the space shuttle going up, so I got some videos of the space shuttle taking off and landing and all that. And now whenever the ISS goes up ahead, just, just this past week, it was early in the evening at like a 70-degree angle off the horizon. So it was really bright, and it was visible for several minutes. And I was like, ah, ISS sighting. She was the first one out the door. <laughs> she said, oh, my God, I want to see it. And ever since that first sighting, she so much has said flat out that she wants a model of the space shuttle for Christmas. Oh, wow. And as a geek dad, I'm just sitting there like, yeah, my girl wants science, and I like it. She's breaking the stereotypical mold for girls her age, and I love it. Jodrell Bank has been awarded £4 million in the autumn statement to go towards a new project to promote the historical importance of of the scientific work undertaken at the Cheshire site. Subject to approval of a business plan, the £4 million completes the fundraising for the £20.5 million First Light project, which combines a celebration of scientific heritage with enhanced education programs. The development will include construction of a new gallery, incorporating a spectacular exhibition and an immersive auditorium. First Light is supported by an offer of £12 million by the Heritage Lottery Fund with generous support from the Garfield Western Foundation, the Wolfson Foundation, the Denise Coates Foundation and the University of Manchester Alumni. Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre currently attracts around 180,000 visitors each year, including 26,000 school pupils on educational visits. The new project is expected to increase the overall visitors to 250,000 and reach an additional 6,000 school pupils per year. The new facility will help people learn more about the history of the observatory at Jodrell Bank, including its pivotal role in the development of radio astronomy, its work in space tracking and its contribution to defence during the Cold War. The site was recently selected as the UK's next candidate for a nomination um, to UNESCO as a World Heritage Site and as numerous listed structures including the Grade 1 listed Lovell and Mark II telescopes. Building on its proud history, the astronomers at Jodrell Bank, part of the University of Manchester's School of Physics and Astronomy, currently operate eMerlin, the UK's national facility for radio astronomy and the site hosts an international headquarters for the upcoming Square Kilometre Array. Professor Teresa Anderson 
and director at the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre said this is a fantastic news and provides the final piece in the jigsaw to enable us to move ahead with this exciting project. We are very grateful to all our funders for their support and we are looking forward to creating something very special to celebrate the history of this unique place. Jodrell Bank is such a foundation place in radio astronomy because at the time when Sputnik was in orbit, Jodrell Bank was the only place that they could actually get a true signal from it. So NASA and everybody else was relying on Jodrell Bank to send signals to them to let them know what was going on. So yeah, it has got such a, a massive history and not only that, they now have the these science festivals every year. They're called the Blue Dot Festival, which is an excellent name for it because we are the the little blue dot mm-hmm. and they have some amazing artists there not only do they have music they have science workshops they have all kinds of things to do with space i mean they've had the likes of um jean-michel jarre actually appearing uh, on stage doing his laser light show things and projecting images off the dish and that okay must... i was about to isn't that the uh, new age composer not yeah. new age yeah okay yeah electronic composer yeah, yeah 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 um and he yeah he was projecting images off the dish of of the radio telescope and it's a it's a pretty big telescope you must have seen the telescopes at, at jodrell bank i would have to see it <laughs> it's pretty impressive they have so many things going on there and it is one of the major science centers in in the UK. So for them to have this kind of funding, to have this new centre up and running, getting education out there to the kids, it's what it's all about. That's what we're here for, that's what we're all here for in this community, and uh, it's amazing. Very cool. Speaking of education and getting kids all interested in this sort of stuff, I'm sure you're familiar with Space Camp, and I don't necessarily mean the movie. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I quite like Space Camp, the movie. The movie wasn't too bad. The, the, The little robot kind of pushed the bounds of Uh, believability (laughs) (laughs) that was a bit too far for the the time period nowadays you could probably get away with it Mm -hmm. uh, and have it be somewhat believable but back then it was like yeah you really just pushed it into the science fiction territory big time with that little robot but still i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the real space camp in alabama yeah well, it is now time for the Space Camp Scholarship application to go on. So, this is for 100% of the tuition to one week of Space Camp. It takes place July 8th through 13th of 2018. It includes flight suit, transportation, and a spending stipend. Uh, the whole thing comes to about $2,500. So, anybody who would like to apply for this, there are lots of conditions because there's going to be a lot of people wanting this. So you have to join the Student Space Ambassador Leadership Program over at the Mars Generation. The family must qualify for the United States Department of Agriculture free lunch program. So right there, that means that it's more for the lower income brackets. That's fine. You know, it gives them an opportunity to do something that they might not ever be able to do. Mm -hmm. So obviously, because of that, you have to live in the continental U.S., obviously Alaska and Hawaii. Sorry. Uh, You must be able to attend space camp for that week, uh, July 17th through July 13th. You must have never attended a space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. You must be between the ages of 15 and 17 as of July 1st, 2018. And the application must be submitted by 11.59 p.m. on January 15th. Now, 
there's an additional piece for that. The application includes three parts that are required for it. So you have to fill out the application form, which includes an outreach project proposal. Again, this deals with uh, the Mars generation. So the students will also need to create and submit a short video introducing themselves, explaining why STEM education and or space exploration are important to the future of mankind. So then that video then needs to be emailed to the Mars generation. And the students will need to have a mentor or teacher fill out a recommendation form. There's a lot to that. Understandably, this is kind of a big thing, but hey, you know, if you meet those qualifications, you're willing to make a video of yourself, you're willing to have someone back you up, you might have a chance to go down to space camp for a week. That would be so cool. That would be amazing. I mean, when I was a kid, that's something that was just, in this country, a dream. Because everything happened in America to, when it came to space. There wasn't any other outlet. Uh, not so much these days, but um, so space camp was a big thing and still is. Still is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people that uh, are involved with NASA and, and, uh, and the other facilities started their careers through going through space camp. Mm-hmm. So it is, a, it is a big thing and a big reward to get at the end of it as well. Yeah. We'll have a link in our show notes to where you can get all this information. I don't like talking about this kind of stuff, but it's oh been, been raising its head recently and I had to, to mention it. Look, um, look, 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 look. I don't care if you like Star Wars or Star Trek. They're separate genres. You can like them both equally. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what you were going to talk about? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to talk about flat earthers. Oh, jeez. <laughs> We're done. Roll the credits. <laughs> You've probably heard about this guy. Uh, there's a California man who planned to launch himself from a rocket to prove that the Earth is flat. He's had to cancel his mission. Now, he, he classes himself as a scientist, although he contradicts himself on that one later on in, in this article. Anyone that calls himself Mad Mike Hughes is, yeah. He was forced to halt his plans because he didn't have the required federal permits, plus had mechanical problems with his motorhome stroke rocket launcher. In an announcement made on YouTube, he said that the US Bureau of Land Management told me that they would not allow me to do the event, at least not at that location. It's been very disappointing, he added. Hughes, described as a self-taught rocket scientist, had been preparing to prove astronauts fabricated the fact that Earth is round by launching himself in a homemade rocket that took him over a year to construct. Mad Mike Hughes planned to launch himself 1,800 feet, 550 meters high in his scrap metal contraption and fly through the air at 500 miles per hour above the Mojave Desert. Ultimately, the 61-year-old limo driver's goal was to get 10 miles high so that he could prove the Earth is disc-shaped. Mr. Hughes spent the last years building the steam-powered rocket out of salvaged parts in his garage. His project cost him $20,000, which includes rust-oleum paint to fancy it up a bit and a motorhome he bought on Craigslist that he converted into a ramp. He planned to strap into his homemade contraption and hurtle over the ghost town of Amboy, which has a population of four, in the Mojave Desert along the historic Route 66. I don't believe in science, said Hughes, whose main sponsor for the rocket is Research Flat Earth. Now, he described himself as a self-taught rocket scientist. 
and then says, I don't believe in science. If I understand correctly, even if his rocket worked, it wouldn't have gone high enough to make a determination anyway. Uh, not at uh, 1,800 feet, it wouldn't, no. No, that wouldn't have done anything. Oh, well, I went up half a mile, so not even half a mile, and I didn't see any difference, so now it's... And besides, we all know that the Earth cannot possibly be disc-shaped because if it was, all the cats in the world would have knocked everything off by now. <laughs> and not only that, you wouldn't have day or night. Just because the Earth is flat doesn't mean that the flat plate can't rotate. You know that's going to be their argument. <laughs> and if that's the case, what's on the backside? Are we talking turtles and elephants here? I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, if the Earth is flat, there must be something on the backside. So what's on the backside? If anybody doesn't know what I mean by the reference of turtles and elephants, uh, it's a, a reference to the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett. Ah, okay. Uh, which the, the Earth is being held up by some turtles flying through space, which is held up by elephants, to which people said, or scientists said, well, what is holding up the turtles and the elephants? And he said, well, more turtles and elephants. <laughs> In fairness, that has been on my want-to-read list, <laughs> but I'm not much of a reader. Really good stuff. They actually made them into TV series, well, miniseries here in the UK uh, as well, some of them anyway. Did you see that Elon Musk and the Flat Earth Society had a little spat? Yeah, that, that was funny. For anyone who hasn't seen this, Elon Musk simply tweeted out, why is there no Flat Mars Society? And the Flat Earth Society responded and said, hi, Elon, thanks for the question. Unlike the Earth, Mars has been observed to be round. To, to quote Monty Python, my brain hurts. Now, Just if, if that is that. the case, then we should all rally around for the Flat Earth Society and pay for them all to go to Mars. Uh, they know it's round, they know it's spherical, so they'll be happy as Larry on Mars observing the Earth being spherical. <laughs> See, the problem is, when you have people like this, then they'll just come up with some ridiculous excuse, like, oh, well, the flat side was facing us the whole time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the top of it, or yeah, the, that was facing us the whole time, so of course it's going to look round. Yeah, the plateau, or the table, or whatever yeah, you whatever. want to call it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> kill me. Well, just forget that even people have sent up homemade balloons way up there that show that there's curvature but of course oh, yeah. i guess all of those videos that do that sort of thing have been video edited you know special effects all that mm -hmm. including when they didn't really have special effects yeah i mean some of these things were done 20 30 years ago they can't be serious they can't be serious they, they've got to be trolling they've got to be trolling and they're just having fun with it please let that be the case i can imagine elon is just he, he was probably in hysterics when he read the response it has been rearing up a bit lately, and I thought, well, there are some people out there who haven't heard these stories. I mean, even statements like, you know, we've, we've got a large number of members around the globe. What? Yeah. They've got to be trolling. They've got to be. Please let them be. And the fact they've got a verified Twitter account. Well, verified Twitter account doesn't really mean jack anymore. With all the stuff politically, we're not, we're, so we're not going to go there. There have been a lot of people there who are not nice people who have been certified and they've, they've got the blue tick and it's like, really? You're certifying that? So that, that's kind of lost its credentials as of late. It's finally happened. There actually is 
life in outer space. And no, I'm not talking about the people inside the International Space Station. It's been verified, kind of, sort of life outside. Maybe? Okay, not really. It, it's actually terrestrial. Uh, scientists have found that living bacteria from the outer side of the Russian segment of the space station, they've actually been able to identify that, but they've said it doesn't pose any sort of danger. During spacewalks under the Russian program, the cosmonauts took samples with cotton swabs on the external surface and obviously sent those back to Earth. And now it turns out that somehow these swabs reveal bacteria that were absent during the launch of the ISS module. That is, they have come from outer space and settled along the external surface. Uh, they are being studied so far, and it seems that they pose no danger. Well, apparently some terrestrial bacteria has been found on there. I'm not, not sure how stuff can get on the outside of the space station. You figure that the space station undergoes thermal change is anywhere from 150 degrees you know, negative to positive. So it gets really cold and it gets really hot. Plus, they think that the bacteria was brought to the space station accidentally on tablet PCs as well as other materials that were placed aboard the ISS for long periods of time. So how did they get to the outside? <laughs> That's the part on that one that makes me think, wait a minute. But nonetheless, it appears that there is life in outer space. Uh, it's got nothing to do with our astronaut. Well, I guess it, it indirectly does. Well, who knows? Maybe that's, uh, you know, something from a passing comet. We do pass through a lot of comet, I don't want to say residue, but, you know, like the various meteor showers and so forth. You never know. I'm not going to go down that route what that could be. <laughs> if it's a residue from comets and stuff, that could be anything. <laughs> hey, you know, they said that it apparently is, is no danger to us, so that's all we can hope for. Mm -hmm. my, my first thought was, ooh, do they have issues in their clean rooms in, in, in the Russian facilities? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It could, yeah, it could be that kind of, they do eject that stuff into space. Mm. So you're right, they could be that. I don't like thinking about that either. Can you work? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that sort of thing until you mentioned it. Yeah. I, I should make a pun that that was a really crappy thing to do, but you know, we won't. <laughs> that one's just too easy. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. Technicians have begun casting the fifth primary mirror for the Giant Magellan Telescope at the University of Arizona's Richard F. Karras Mirror Laboratory. And this thing is a monster. When this telescope is finished, it will integrate seven of these mirrors. Each of these mirrors weighs 20 tons and is 27.6 or 8.4 meters wide. It's gonna focus all that light onto a single collecting surface that's 80 feet across. So when this thing is all done, it's going to have roughly 10 times the resolution or, well, okay, resolving power, as they call it, of the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is going to be ground-based, and it's going to have 10 times the resolution. But making one of these mirrors is insane. It takes 20 tons worth of borosilicate glass chunks in a special rotating furnace, and the furnace is shaped like a honeycomb. That furnace is then heated to over 2,100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, roughly 1,165 degrees Celsius. And it does that for four hours until the glass melts and fits that honeycomb-shaped mold. Mm -hmm. So then it stays in there for three months to cool down. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
the whole time this thing is spinning. Then when it's done, it's shaped and polished until the surface is perfected within 20 nanometers, which is roughly the thickness of a single glass molecule. Science. Yeah. <laughs> this is just amazing. And then to look at the photos that they have of, of putting those glass pieces in place. So the first mirror that they've got out of the seven is completely done. And that's been moved down to a storage facility near the Tucson International Airport. Mirrors two through four are currently in various stages of work. Obviously, they've just started on mirror five. But they're not waiting for all seven to be done. Eventually, this is going to go down to the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, which is obviously South America. Duh, that's where a lot of the telescopes are. Yeah. Um, but they currently plan on the telescope to be doing what it does in 2023 with just four of its mirrors up. Even then, with only four mirrors, it'll still be the largest telescope in the world by a factor of two. Wow. <laughs> this thing is a, or it will be, a monster. And it's just amazing to look at the pictures for this and to see this this giant rotating oven as well as, like I said, the, the pieces of glass as they're putting it on that, that hexagon surface. It's it's really amazing to look at. I won't say cool because at those temperatures, there's nothing cool about it. <laughs> but just think about that. A three-month cool-down process. Yeah, that's extremely hot. <laughs> For me, it's just like, okay, we put it in. You know, thought Thinking that that 19 hours back from Voyager 1 was a long time. Could you imagine three months to find out if there was a problem? It, mind you, you say that, though. It's, it's going to be like that with James Webb, isn't it? Because yeah. it's going to take a month to get out there. And then it's going to take another, didn't it say, six months so that it can get to the correct temperature. Yeah, something like that. So that's seven months before you can actually do any work. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they'll be monitoring it the whole time, but still, yeah, it's like kids get antsy when it's just a few weeks away from Christmas. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, come on, they get like that when they have to wait more than a few seconds for something to load up. Yeah, that's true, too. I mean, back in the day when we used to have to wait five minutes for a game to <laughs> load up and then it came up with some kind of error and you had to reload yeah. it again. <laughs> Listen, Sonny, back in my days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seven, yeah, seven months. But, I mean, I'm just thinking three months just to see this big oven and it's just there. Even with only four mirrors, it's going to be the largest telescope out there. That's amazing. It's difficult to imagine, isn't it, really? It's... It's yeah, I mean, just... one mirror, 20 tons. Oh, yeah, there are going to be seven of them. What? But I can't wait. To, I mean, if it's going to be, be even better than the Hubble, and obviously you and I love just about everything the Hubble produces. Yeah, yeah. And this is going to be even better than that through the atmosphere? I'm really eager to see what this thing can put out. Because you know what it's like when you're trying to look through a telescope, norm, just a normal telescope, and you it, you've got... Uh, the atmosphere does cause a, a bit of a wobble with whatever you're trying to take an image of. Mm -hmm. So this thing is saying, right, okay, we're going to go straight through the atmosphere and we're going to be producing some spot-on pictures. Okay. I don't <laughs> see how that works, but <laughs> I'm not the scientists that are involved in this, so... Uh, That's right. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to seeing what that can produce. Yeah, that's going to be impressive. Just wait for the BBC to make some documentaries about it now. Because <laughs> they, they've done them for everything else. They might, they've got to do it. 
and some of the BBC documentaries about some of these telescopes and things are really good. <laughs> the true life story of 13 women who underwent the same medical testing as NASA's Mercury astronauts at the start of the space age is being developed as a miniseries for Amazon. Mercury 13 will tell the history of the first lady astronaut trainees, or flats, the women pilots who were recru- recruited for the privately financed program by the Lovelace Foundation, the same clinic that devised the test to screen the United States' first astronauts. The Amazon series is being based on journalist Martha Ackman's 2003 book, The Mercury 13, The True Story of the 13 Women and the Dream Space Flight. The Mercury 13, which is at the moment is a working title, but I can see it still being called that, series is being penned by showrunner Liz Hanna, the screenwriter for the upcoming Steven Spielberg movie, The Post, featuring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Amy Pascal of Pascal Pictures, who produced this year's Spider-Man Homecoming, and Bradley Witt, who is perhaps best known for playing the White House Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman on the NBC drama The West Wing, will be the executive producer, together with Tim and Trevor White of Star Thrower Entertainment. Pascal Whitford and the Whites also worked with Hannah on the production of The Post. Six of the original flats are living including Jerry Cobb who was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 2012 and Wally Funk who has made a deposit towards a space flight on Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 for when it begins service in the coming years. Other Mercury 13 members include Myrtle Cagle Jan and Marion Dietrich, Janie Hart, Jean Hickson, Jerry Truehill, Rhea Waltman, Irene Leverton, Jean Nora Jetson, Sarah Rately, and Bernice Stedman. The 13 women who were said to have performed as well as, if not better, as their male counterparts during the Lovelace trials have been subject of at least three other books, including The Right Stuff, The Wrong Sex, uh, America's First Women in the Space Program by the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum curator Margaret Whitecamp. They were also portrayed in an episode of the ABC television series The Astronaut Wife's Club in 2015. Now, I mentioned Wally Funk there, um, and she's made another documentary for the BBC World Service. Her first being Women with the Right Stuff, and in her latest documentary, which is called The First Woman on the Moon, if history had been kinder, Wally Funk might have become the first woman on the moon. Unfortunately, her chance never came and no one has walked on the moon since 1972. During the documentary, Wally travels from Cape Canaveral to the European Space Agency in Paris meeting scientists and entrepreneurs who are trying to make a return to the moon a reality. Wally also talks to scientists at ESA and the German Aerospace Centre experimenting with simulated moon dust to make bricks for future lunar bases. Finally, at the European Astronaut Centre, Wally meets up with astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti, who is prepared, if the opportunity arises, to become the first woman on the moon. That should be a really good documentary. I will put a link to that in the in the show notes because it is available to 
anybody because it being BBC World Service, it's not going to be region specific. Hopefully not. I actually have run into some situations with that. I believe it's only streamable at the moment, but give it a little while and it will be downloadable because I know Women With The Right Stuff is now available to download for anybody. Seeing as how I am a Yankee, I can verify right now what the situation is. Women With The Right Stuff... So yeah, that one is downloadable. Uh, what's what's the other one again? The first woman on the moon. Right. So it shows me a picture of Sally Ride. Um. That's <laughs> one small step for man. I'm Wally Funk on BBC World Service with First Woman on the Moon. Oh, okay. See, you might not be able to hear this, but First Woman on the Moon is actually playing right now from BBC World Service. Awesome. So, yeah, available to everyone. Yep. Excellent. Cool. There you go. Really well worth a listen to. Both of them are. Wally Funk is a force of nature. She really is. But she is, you know, she's still, I can't remember how old she is now, but she's still flying planes. Um, an awesome lady. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to those. Well, we all know about what happened to the Cassini probe. Yeah. Now part of the Saturn atmosphere. Well, the team behind that decided to release a new composite image. It's based on 42 separate photos that were taken. Now, they do say that this is its natural color. Although it it was taken with separate sequences of red, green, and blue, they've tried to make it as true color as possible, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's gorgeous. It is an absolutely gorgeous photo. Uh, The thing measures a resolution of 2,222 by 1250. That's a nice high resolution for it, but you can also see Enceladus, Janus, and a couple of the other moons. I guess you could say that at this point, Cassini is on the back end of Saturn, so Saturn is between it and the Sun, but yet it's still slightly up higher, and it's it's a really, really nice photo. Have you seen that one yet? Because I just released it this week, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did see that. Now, that. That was an easy one. Obviously, it's not something that works too well in an audio podcast. Mm-hmm. But I know you, and you'll have a link to it in the show notes. And I don't doubt that for many listeners, that might be considered to be their next Windows or you know whatever operating system background. <laughs> they are, have got various different um, file sizes because you can get the original version of it, which is pretty big. Yeah, well, you know, that's the one that I found. I actually looked in the article that I have for links to it, and I wasn't able to find it, so I just went with what I had. Yeah, I should just try and find that. And it is a whopping 6,000 by 2,500 resolution. Oh, well, that's big. That's big. But quality. <laughs> yeah, that's even bigger than a 4K TV. As you say, it's all composites, but mm-hmm. it, when you put it all together, it's really nice. Yeah, I mean, when you can even see the texture of the cloud surfaces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is a nice image. If you wanted to make the case that spaceflight is about to take a giant leap, SpaceX's next cargo run to the International Space Station for NASA could be Exhibit A. That mission, which is currently scheduled for launch on the 8th of December, I say that because you know how things work, they uh, tend to get moved around a bit, will likely represent a reusability landmark. That cargo run will employ a a pre-flown Dragon capsule and a first stage as well. That's that's amazing. And consider the cargo. One of the science investigations riding the Dragon is a machine built by the California-based company Made in Space that's designed to produce optical fibre 
aboard the International Space Station. Mm. If all goes to plan, this experiment could be a big step towards the establishment of off-Earth economy, amazing space representatives have said. The Zeeblan machine, which is going up on the next resupply mission, is part of a project that's a collaboration with a New Jersey-based company, Thor Labs, Made in Space has said that the space-produced Zeeblan optical fibre could be orders of magnitude more efficient than the stuff made on Earth because our planet's powerful gravity induces imperfections in the fibre's fine-scale structure. Made in Space has also got bigger dreams. Made in Space has launched two 3D printers to the International Space Station. Currently, one operates as a fully commercial facility and NASA owns the other one. Such machines could reduce the cost and risks associated with spaceflight, for example, by allowing voyaging astronauts to print out needed parts on demand. So uh, company representatives and NASA officials have said. The two 3D printers aboard the ISS can currently manufacture products using only polymer feedstock, but Maiden Space is working to add metal to its orbital repertoire. The company is developing a metal cable system known as Vulcan with the aid of NASA's small business uh, innovation research grant which was awarded in July and Made in Space is also working on a metal extruder head that could be added to a 3D printer already orbiting on the lab. One of the broad goals that we have at Made in Space is to bring as many manufacturing technologies to a space-ready state as possible. The objective, ultimately, is to have the same kind of machine shop manufacturing capabilities that you have on Earth, but in space. The other project they're working on is the Archinaut, which is a 3D printing robotic arm-equipped spacecraft. The company representatives said this craft will be able to build big structures such as telescopes in orbit and also repair and upgrade existing satellites. The upcoming experiment is designed to test this idea and help Maiden Space determine whether there is a viable market for the product. Can you imagine that though? I don't know. Telescopes? I think that's going a bit too far. A machine that flies around in space producing 3D printed material in space. I think there is prospects with the Archinaut. I mean, you could go to Hubble Mm -hmm. and you could repair it using 3D printed materials. Yeah. It's possible. I mean, I guess there's logistics there of of making a pit stop to pick up the material, then taking off again to you know get over to the Hubble, but mm. not taking off again. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Most of what we have now is you go up, you come back. Mm-hmm. So then there's more logistics involved, and okay, we get over there and then get off to another spot. Well, this is where these gateway things come in to force, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you had two or three of them scattered around different places. Yeah, that's true. I mean, how many of those iridium satellites are out there? That's true. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of those out there. So yeah, why not? That sounds pretty cool. But you know, for stuff like what they were talking about with optical cable, that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that they'd like to produce. I mean, they being just the general manufacturing facilities that are problematic on Earth that wouldn't be so much of a problem with no gravity. Yeah, I get it. I think it'd be a little bit of a bear to try to get resources up there on a regular basis but you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. with all the rocket launches going on now who knows if they put it in low earth orbit enough there are a number of facilities that could launch rockets to resupply it yeah no that's a cool idea they've got big plans it all starts with a plan yeah and as i say the first part of that is going up maybe the end of the week 
maybe not. We don't know yet. <laughs> but yeah, to have it launching on an already used first stage and capsule. That is what the space shuttle was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. For a fraction of the cost of the space shuttle, though. The problems with that, though, I mean, you had getting it ready with all those tiles, and those tiles yeah. take a lot of effort to get back Oh, to. yeah, they do. No, don't get me wrong. I still love my space shuttle. Oh. In many ways, I wish we still had it, because we've got nothing now. But I understand it was a, it was a lot of money to run. Yeah, it definitely was. This is going to tick off some people. I actually like the NASA Worm logo. Oh, I've got a NASA Worm logo um, pin. Oh, uh, nice. They got, you know, my commemorative jacket thing that I've got with my cool sign patches uh, on I there just, and all that kind of stuff. I know there are a lot of people, in, including a good friend of mine, who's just like, ew, ew, ew. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, but Sorry. <laughs> why do you like it? Because it's the 80s. Well, I mean, there is that. <laughs> There is that. I'm sorry. It was a very simplistic, cool little logo, but (laughs) I still like it, so. (laughs) So, remember that little interstellar visitor that uh, the solar system had a little while ago? Oh, yeah. That that meteor or asteroid, whatever you want to call it, that came from outside our own solar system? Well, it looks like they finally have figured out what it looks like using various data you know, from all over the place. You know, once people realized this thing was happening, it's like, oh, boy, we got to see it. So telescopes of all kinds went up to look at it. Well, the thing is called Oumuamua. I did do a pronunciation thing on that to try and figure out because yep. it's... Um... Hawaiian, I Hawaiian. Think? Yeah. Hawaiian. Yeah. It's it's Hawaiian for a messenger from afar arriving first. From what they can figure out, this thing is up to one quarter mile long, so about 400 meters long, but it's very highly elongated. It's like a big cigar because it's about 10 times as long as it is wide, which really is nothing like anything we've really seen. So all our asteroids are you know, they look like egg-shaped if they're not spherical. Well, then, of course, we've got the uh, duck-shaped comet that we just had to look at. Oh, 67B, yeah. Yep. Oh, yes. Where we have our little filet lander just sleeping away on there. Yeah. The weird part is they're still not sure where it came from. So they do know that it has about it has a reddish color, which is similar to other objects in the outer solar system. They do know that it's completely inert because they got no hint of dust or water or organic molecules or anything like that. It's literally just a big rock in space. Initially, when they tracked it, they thought that it came from the Vega system. However, Vega was not in that position when the asteroid was out that way about 300,000 years ago. So it couldn't have possibly come from the Vega system because Vega wasn't there. So they're not sure where this thing came from. Yeah, that's strange. Kind of spooky. Kind of cool, though. It's got that kind of feel about it because it's a weird shape. It's not your normal kind of asteroidy kind of shape. Mm-hmm. You don't know where it's come from. I'm just getting this feel of a B movie sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. It came from outer space. A space cigar. <laughs> <laughs> They found that it varies in brightness by a factor of 10, spins on its axis every 7.3 hours, and apparently no known asteroid or comet varies so widely in brightness. So this thing is, as much as we've found out stuff about it, it's still just as much of a mystery. So it has been reclassified as an interstellar asteroid. But no, Pluto has not been reclassified as a planet. Yet. (laughs) You knew I had to get that in, though. I'm a jerk. I might be a jerk, but you're the one who suggested that the bacteria might be poop from space. I didn't actually <laughs> say that. 
You, yeah, you did effectively. I read between the lines. You're not fooling anyone, mate. <laughs> As you know, we love space and sci-fi related stamps. And the German post office has released a series of stamps celebrating astrophysics. There are two stamps in the set, and the first one features gravitational waves. Now, for those of you not in the know, when masses are accelerated in space, the distortions they cause propagate in waves. If the masses are big enough, such as the fusion of super-heavy black holes, these gravitational waves can be measured here on Earth. At the beginning of 2016, scientists announced that they were going to be able to detect gravitational waves for the very first time with the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, which we featured in last month's episode. The second stamp features ESA's Global Astrometric Interferometer for Astrophysics Satellite, or GAIA. In late 2013, GAIA launched from Kourou Spaceport in French Guiana with 106 detectors on board. She can accurately determine the position, movements, brightness and colours of stars. To do this, GAIA has a high-performance camera with one billion pixels that can detect a hair from a thousand kilometers away. Holy cow! Gaia has already created the most comprehensive map of our galaxy. Gaia's mission is expected to end in 2019, but the publication of the catalogue of stars that she has documented is scheduled for 2022. The stamps are available already, but the website does not state whether you can buy them from outside of Germany. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, although you will need to translate the website, because there isn't an English version. Yeah, those aren't, I don't see anything for purchasing. Sorry. Hey, but I got a friend of mine who used to live in Alabama, and he now lives in Germany, so... I might have to be sending him a Facebook message. Uh, yeah, I know a couple of people in Germany as well. So <laughs> I'm assuming it's only available if you go into the post office and ask for it. Probably. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't mention anything on there about purchasing. But, yeah, they are quite smart. There's a Kickstarter out there that makes me wish I had more disposable income. It's from an Australian artist named Catherine, and I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, Machin. Those of us in the U.S., I'm sure I've heard of Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light. Uh, he, he was famous for doing cottage scenes and stuff like that. But when you turn the lights down, the painting still seemed to kind of glow just because his painting style. Well, except what she is doing is she is making what she calls glowing galaxies. These are both large and small paintings, and they actually do glow in the dark. She's using some kind of glow-in-the-dark paint, or you know, some kind of component mixing it in with the paint. She has uh, a bunch of uh, nebula paintings that she made and sunrise-sunset kind of things. But in some way, they all involve space. Uh, as she says in her video, she's effing obsessed with space. Yes, they do bleep it out, but, you know. And it's amazing to look at some of the work that she's done. And all of the paintings that she has also demonstrate what they look like with the glow in the dark. I really, really, really would love some of these. Uh, I mean, you can get some of the smaller ones for... Uh, like for 15 Australian dollars, you can get 10 of her postcard prints. If you go higher to like 90 Australian dollars, you can actually get 
one of the smaller prints, 24 inches by 16 inches. Uh, but then it goes all the way up to, oh, let's see, what's one of her big ones? Okay, the biggest one here is 12930 Australian dollars. That's interesting. Uh, but that thing reaches almost 10 feet by six and a half feet. Wow. So go metrics, it's exactly 600 centimeters by 200 centimeters. And she will paint it. And just watching the process of how she does it and the results of it are gorgeous. She has a whole bunch of different nebula paintings out there, like the Cat's Eye Nebula, Swan Nebula, the, the Pillars of Creation, as they're called. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing to look at. I wish I had a portion of this talent. Yeah, this is definitely something worth looking at. And if you have the disposable income, well, if you have if you have the disposable income, uh, it would be good to support your favorite space-based podcast. Hello, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but otherwise, support this independent artist. She's really good. We will have a link in the show notes. Uh, like I said, it's on Kickstarter, and it's called Glowing Galaxies with the subtext of glow in the dark deep space artwork. And she's really good. There's no way to visualize it in an audio podcast. You got to see this. This is the, the beauty of having show notes. <laughs> That's very true. The BBC is getting serious about VR content and its production, and the broadcaster has released a spacewalk experience and formally announced a VR team that will be working with filmers, showrunners, and digital experts on new pieces. Home, a VR spacewalk, was developed by the BBC and digital production studio Rewind for the HTC Vine and Oculus Rift last year. Now, it's based on NASA and European Space Agency training programs and has been shown at various film festivals but hasn't been available to the public until now. Have a listen to this. For our home project, uh, we were working closely with the BBC to create a piece of almost interactive and immersive theatre surrounding what it would actually be like to do a spacewalk. It came about through um, actually a conversation with Tim Peake and he was talking about one of the experiences he enjoyed the most. It was an emergency training scenario. Um, uh, but an emergency training scenario that he was incredibly good at. And we sort of said, well, hang on a minute, actually this is potentially a wonderful chance to explore how VR as an experiential medium can help somebody learn. It can potentially be an inspiring thing, giving somebody the opportunity to, to, to live out their dream. And also, I guess, from a story and a creative craft point of view, we can start to really explore and push out what the medium and VR in particular can do. We were looking to um, push the boundaries of that ability to cross the border from being a form of entertainment to being a a life experience. One of the problems we had to consider was how you actually traverse around the ISS. In space, obviously, if you push against a handle or a surface, you would just completely float off. So we had to try and design a system that was accessible for that. So it gives the feeling that you are weightless, but you do actually have a purpose. If you want to spend 15 minutes literally climbing around the outside of the station, you can do that. But we always um, designed the narrative uh, as a kind of a rubber band narrative, so there are two fixed points, and you can kind of deviate as far as you want, but it'll always bring you back to that next point of the narrative. We also built the project entirely to scale, so the Earth itself is actually the correct one-to-one -one size, nothing is cheated, um, which did actually cause a few issues in production, working on sort of scene scale 
scales that large, but Unreal allowed us to work like that. So it meant that we could actually recreate a lot of the lighting effects and a lot of the physics. UE4 uh, as an engine uh, for us gives a higher level of fidelity and polish to projects early on. We ended up having to create, I think it's about a quarter of the Earth, um, takes up most of the world space, so that when you look down out of the space station, the, the visual distance to the Earth is correct. It gives you that real sense of scale, um, and then we have to bring in, on top of that, like cloud layers and uh, weather and the lighting. UE4 gives the ability to map all of the Earth that you could potentially see from the space station uh, in the real game space. We actually got the chance to put two astronauts in it recently in New York, um, both of which came out going, wow, that's quite profound. We're really pleased with that, not least because it falls so wonderfully into kind of the BBC's Inform Educate and Entertain. Now, I've got a, a video that I'm going to put in the show notes, which basically gives you an idea of what it actually looks like when you're playing or training in the exercise it's pretty impressive so you've, you've got someone in your ear telling you what you need to be doing and basically you are holding on to things outside of the space station and you're undoing bolts and things to try and fix something that's happened on the ISS nice and it really does look impressive that actually does sound pretty cool. So, you know, I, I, I guess they've got you said they've got the rig up of the space station out there, so you can actually tactilely feel what's going on. Mm, yeah, that's the part that really makes it work. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that when you push away from something on there, it actually feels like you are weightless because of the mm-hmm. fact that you've got that resistance or so no resistance, and it does sound like fun. <laughs> Yeah, that would be worth doing. As I say, there's a, there will be a video on the show notes that you can have a look at what you will be experiencing, but not, if you know what I mean, because you really need to have the gear to, to experience it properly. But, well, you know what? That leads directly into what I was going to talk about, because it's along the same lines. One of the things that wowed a lot of us geeks at uh, one of the gaming events a few years ago was Microsoft's HoloLens. Have you seen that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, HoloLens is augmented reality, not virtual reality. So mm-hmm. kind of like Google Glass, you put it on and you can see what's going on around you, but then they project images on top of that to give you uh, you know, an, an, augment, an augmented reality experience. The problem is there's still no consumer version of it out, and the developer version of that thing is roughly $3,000. So... A guy named Victor Luo, who is a technologist with uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratories Ops Labs, has kind of taken that idea of HoloLens, but he's using it now with Samsung's Gear VR and Google Daydream. So right there means you need to have kind of the higher-ended phones for this to work. But what he does is, if you go down to Kennedy Space Center, what they, they actually had this available with HoloLens, and you could actually roam the Martian surface virtually. So it was an exhibit called Destination Mars. Well, what he's done is he's brought that to Samsung Gear VR and Google Daydream. If you have the phones that can run those, great. Otherwise, there's an additional expense to it, obviously. If you have any of those, then instead of actually downloading an app from Google Play, you go to accessmars.withgoogle.com and you have to do it in the Chrome browser for your phone. But then it will actually take you on a VR headset you know, a, a 3D experience based on the Curiosity rover's landing site. So you can look around and you can tell rover, I want to go here or I want to go there. 
and it will go and explore the Martian surface with you. Granted, it's not immediate because there's a little bit of a, like a, a couple of days or weeks for the imagery to get down there. But you can basically go to wherever rover currently is right now. Wow. And you, you just do it all through, I guess, the new version of Google Cardboard. Now, it would be nice if he brought it down to Google Cardboard level. That would be very nice. But as it stands right now, if you have one of the better phones that are compatible with Samsung's Gear VR or uh, Google Daydream, then you can walk along the Martian surface with the rover. So that's about all we've got time for on the uh, the news front. We're going to do our usual thing right now, and we're going to come back after a break, and we'll be talking to our resident astronomer. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. So back on the show for the last time this year is Ross Hockham from the UK Astronomy Group. How you doing, sir? Very well, mate. You? Busy, but uh, to be expected this time of year. Yeah, well, yeah, it's this time of year, isn't it? December. Oh, and you've just had your last outing for the year. It was meant to be kind of like an astronomy talk for kids and with inflatable solar system and all that stuff, which they love, and going out and having a look at the moon with all our scopes. But it turned out to literally just be outside chatting for five minutes, and then suddenly everyone was out on all the scopes. And in fact, the kids were actually, I was teaching them how to use them. They all helped themselves, saw the moon, and had a, a great night. It must have been about two hours out there just looking at the moon and chatting to people so it was fantastic really good gig that's brilliant because we were due to get over to you but logistically it didn't quite work out but um as you said there's plenty of opportunity for us to tag along next year oh yeah yeah we've got loads of gigs next year with people are booking us up oh, up to october already so yeah loads and you're always welcome you know tgp podcast always welcome we love you guys awesome now you know the reason why you're here let us know what's going on up in the skies for no uh, i need to november december <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, close. <laughs> over to you. All right, yeah, December. We love this time of year. Nice and dark, and also Christmas. And as you said, yeah, really busy. So I don't think me or you know what's going on or where we are or anything like that. But hopefully, if you're out beginning of the month, you may have noticed that the moon actually looked quite big. It looked really big and bright, especially as it's kind of rising. And uh, the reason for that was because uh, on the second, the moon was at its closest distance from Earth. So it's really close to us. Well, not really close to it otherwise the tides and everything would just float off into space and so would we but it's known as its perigee which means its closest part in orbit really so the moon's distance from earth varies throughout its monthly sort of orbit around us and because the moon's orbit isn't actually perfectly circular, not many things are in the uh, galaxy, every month the moon's uh, eccentric orbit actually carries it back and forth slightly closer, slightly further away and it's known as its perigee and its apogee. They always make nice big words like this I had to try and figure out how to say. It happens almost kind of every couple of weeks, every two weeks it's close and two weeks it's far again. And it just so happened that at the beginning of the month it was at its perigee, so it was close to us. And because the third was a full moon, almost at perigee, so close, so a full moon close to us, it looked pretty cool as it was rising. And mostly that's to do with uh, an illusion in our atmosphere because when light goes around the bend, 
it's almost like refracted. So you're actually seeing the moon before it actually has risen, which is a bit weird. And it's the same with the sun. The light from it has bent over the curve towards your eyes and you're seeing it before it's actually there, which is quite cool. You know, like if you look through water sometimes, the fish can be somewhere where it's not. Yeah. Because the light has bent it. Yeah. And that's what happens. So the, that sort of illusion makes the sun and the moon seem bigger than it actually is. And you always hear that all the papers and everything always go, wow, super moon, you're not going to see it for another 400,000 years. It pretty much every full moon <laughs> is kind of a super moon. <laughs> it's the only one this year, though, isn't it? The only super moon It is, this year. yes. It's worse. the last one. The last one this year. And it's all to do with like this perigee. So if it's close and it's a full moon, it's going to be, you know, it makes it look a little bit more impressive in the sky than, you know, just a normal full moon. So it is something cool to go and see. But for astronomers, it kind of does happen all the time, really. <laughs> Did you see it at all? Well, when it actually comes up in the evening, it's directly just shines light straight through the kitchen. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not the bedroom, is it? Because otherwise you're going to have to have a, a blackout blind there. Because <laughs> with me, I'm quite lucky. It rises a bit. Then there's a house in the way, and then there's some trees. So as it comes up, for me, it's not great. As an astronomer in my back garden, I want to have a look. But for actually a good night's sleep, <laughs> I don't have to have a blackout blind because it doesn't pour through. <laughs> but yeah, that was the beginning of the month. So if you saw that, awesome. And then, uh, we're also, we'll let you know, obviously, in future ones, if it's going to happen again, it will happen again. Mm-hmm. The timing should be right a few times in the year, hopefully. And then on to the main event in December. The moon's out the way most of the time in the the middle of the month. And that's right when there's a meteor shower. It's called the Geminid meteor shower. And it peaks around about the 13th or 14th. Now, before I talk about the actual meteor shower itself, it actually leads us on to a few things to talk about around this area. Because first of all, it's the actual source of the Geminid meteor shower. Now, you may remember that most meteor showers are kind of caused by Earth passing through like the tail of a comet, where the comet's gone round the sun over and over and over again and left like a dust lane in space. And we go through it, and that creates meteor showers that peak at certain times because that's when it's its densest and stuff like that. Now, the Geminids are slightly different because it's not actually a comet that causes it. It's one of only two meteor showers that we have that's actually caused by an asteroid. So this asteroid is called 3200 Phaeton. It's actually spelt P-H-A-E-T-H-O-N. And yeah, that's the thing that causes this month's meteor shower. There's around 10 to 50 an hour. It's not like the August one where you get like 100, but because it's got such a range there, 10 to 50, you don't know, there might be more. It might actually, you know, you might be going for a slightly denser bit. You can't really say. So it's definitely worth going out and seeing, especially because it's dark this time of year as opposed to August. There's no moon. It's kind of out the way. So you've got a chance of seeing more because the lighter and the sort of dimmer ones you'll see easier. They radiate from the constellation Gemini. Now, the actual rock itself, Phaeton, is about five kilometers. So quite big in a way, but it comes to within 10.4 million kilometers of Earth. So it actually comes in space terms quite close to us on the 16th. And that's just a few days after the meteor shower. So it actually comes within viewing range of medium to large scopes. So you'll see it'd be like a rapidly moving white dot in the sky because it comes so close and then kind of goes round and off quite quickly in its orbit around us. You actually be able to see it going across the sky within a few hours and uh, it starts in the constellation of Andromeda and then it passes later on in the month into the square of Pegasus. So you can actually see the meteor shower and the bits burning up from this ball of rock in the sky and uh, then you can actually look and see the ball of rock in the sky that is causing this dust lane which is causing a meteor shower which I think is pretty cool. So you actually get to see it. 
he's got a telescope or anything and I'm hoping to be out either 16th or 17th so if you look at our website www.ukastronomy.org put on there if we're out in Milton Keynes sort of area you never know you might be able to come along and see it with us and uh, the way to find it if you know where Orion is which is the constellation I think I've spoken about it a couple of times before and if you look at Orion you've got Orion's belt and above him you've got his shoulders and Betelgeuse on the left and then you've got his arm raised up where there's a nice little cluster that looks like a number 37 if you have a look in his arm with binoculars and find that it's quite cool above him you'll see a constellation that it almost just looks like two stick men holding hands and that's pretty much exactly what it is it's, it's two brothers and the heads of the stick men is actually where the meteor shower radiates from so it's gemini's heads really so it's almost like maybe a palm of your hand looking towards you open wide that's how it's going to kind of radiate from but that's the best place to sort of have a look so just above orion they'd be shooting all over the sky so you'll see them in ancient history gemini has a, actually quite an amusing story behind why they're there and who they are and it involves the god zeus and for some reason he decided he was going to turn into a swan which is the constellation cygnus in the sky and he swooped down and uh, he, he wooed a queen who later then went and wooed her husband the king and thus giving birth to castor and pollux which are the two twins in gemini and also the two stars that are the heads and because one was obviously the king's it was mortal one was zeus is it was immortal and then there's a little story about what happened to them and why they ended up in the sky obviously uh well the mortal one i can never remember which one's which so i'll just say the mortal one got injured and was going to die and the immortal one said to zeus please 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 save him i don't want him to die give him my immortality blah 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 and zeus decided to save them both and throw them up into the sky to live there forever and that's the general story there's lots of different stories because obviously you've got greek roman all sorts of stuff but that's what gemini is it's, it's the two brothers up there so one of them is actually the son of zeus i'm trying to remember now because the twin brothers that are in the movie i don't know if you may have seen it face off yeah I have seen Face Off, yeah. Nicolas Cage film. The, the two brothers in that are named oh, They are, after aren't they? Them. Yes. So I'm trying to remember which way yeah, round totally it is. I forgot that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love this stuff. The thing is, when you look at constellations and names and things, there's, there's loads of different little stories because obviously it's been through the ancient times it's been twisted and changed and new bits added bits taken off and so there's there's quite a few amusing stories up there in the skies which i find i always like to talk about it because i think it's a little bit well why is it called gemini and then you, you know you start looking into the history a bit and you think ah that's quite interesting mm -hmm. but yeah that's cool I, I love hearing little stories like that so if you've got any please do butt in <laughs> I was just talking to myself. But uh, yeah, if, if also, if you're at Gemini, if you have a look at the top stick man, where his, where his feet are down at the bottom, get a pair of binoculars and have a little look around there because there's a really nice open cluster of stars from Orion's belt up to his arm, number 37, and then go from there up to Gemini's foot and there's a nice open cluster and there is a little glob right next to it in the same sort of field of view. So you might be able to see that in the dark skies. They're just a couple of nice little things thrown in while you're sitting waiting to see a few meteors flying about. So that's the main event that's happening, and I hope to see it. If we move on to the 15th and we go to Jupiter, which is up in the morning at the moment, if you pop your scope on it, I think it's around 6.30. So you have to be careful because the sun is rising. So you don't want to have a look at that through binoculars because that will be the end of your astronomy career. <laughs> you won't be able to see anything. Pretty much, yeah. But yeah, if you have a look there, they're saying that uh, its moons, three of them, are going to be almost in a triangle. So forming a triangle to the side of it. So that would be quite cool to see, good for a picture. So you'll have Jupiter, three moons in sort of like a triangle shape, and then one off on its own. So that's something to have a little peek at. If you're up early in the morning, you're getting ready for work, nip out some binoculars. On the 16th, 
that's sort of the Geminid meteor source Phaeton, which we talked about, the lump of rock. That's when it moves into the square of Pegasus. So it's moving quite quick. It's going from Andromeda to Pegasus within a few days. So it really is flying through past us. And we're actually then, think about it, we're actually going through its tail. So it's quite close. <laughs> a couple of days, we then go through its tail, and then it's past us. You're like, oh, that might hit us one day. But I think we're fine for at least a few thousand hundred years or something. I'm sure NASA would tell us. <laughs> <laughs> and then if we go to the 18th, it's my favourite time because it's a new moon, which means it's out the way, it's gone. As much as I love the moon, it means I can do what I love with my uh, my 10-inch Dobsonian, which is deep space. I love looking at deep space and galaxies and nebulas and things like that. So it's also, the sun is actually nearing its most southerly point in the sky, and it's around about the 20th it does this, and that means that it's the longest and darkest sky that we get this year. And then after that, they start getting shorter and shorter. And then I start getting more upset because I can't go out till about 12 o'clock at night for an hour's worth of dark sky. But it does mean that we can go out on this date, you know, when the Geminids are and things like that, and actually have a really nice dark sky for a long time to get out and get really cold. <laughs> so take a cup of tea if you're going out. <laughs> and it is known, it's the winter solstice. So the 21st of December in the Northern Hemisphere is when we have our winter solstice. And then it's apparently meant to start getting warmer. <laughs> but I'm not sure about that. Not yeah, for a while. I'm on a motorbike, so that's I love this time of year. <laughs> Up and down the M1, lovely. But yeah, while you're there, and seeing as it's December, it would be rude not to talk about Christmas tree cluster. It's known to astronomers as NGC 2264, which is just NGC just means new general catalogue of objects. It's just a catalogue of objects there to find so that we know where they are, but otherwise known as the Christmas tree cluster. And around this area, there's actually two objects. The first one is a lovely cluster of stars that's actually in the shape of a Christmas tree. And it may look upside down depending on what scope you're using, but it actually has a base. It kind of looks like a Christmas tree going up with stars. And then it actually even happens to have a brighter star right at the top just like a real Christmas tree you have at home so you can go out have a look at it you should be able to see it with binoculars telescope take your kids out and say look there's a Christmas tree in space and it will be found just below the constellation of Gemini which is where you'll be looking for the meteor shower and it's not far from the foot of Pollux so if you find the star Pollux and follow that stick man down by his foot that will be where kind of like a Christmas tree cluster is if you've got Stellarium on your iPads or anything like that use that It'd be a great way to find it it's a lovely cluster to see but if you're an astronomer like me and it's dark or you have a camera because a camera is best to get it out so a bit of astrophotography take some pictures there and uh, if you have really good skies you may start to see like a clump of dust appear and that's known as the cone nebula and it's named that because it actually it literally looks like a cone rising up towards the tip of the tree and it's, it's known as a dark absorption nebula which is pretty much just consists of cold molecular hydrogen and dust so it's just a big clump of dust which you know can create stars and things like that so it's, it's, it's just a nebula but while you're there you never know you might see it I haven't yet because I haven't had a dark enough sky but great time to see it with the sun out the way moon out the way farther away why not you never know and now on to the last day the 31st if you're up past midnight, which I'm guessing most people probably will be, if you have a look at the moon for a while, as it's amongst the stars, it will uh, actually occult a few. So it moves in front of a load of stars. It's done it a few times lately because it happens to be in Taurus the ball. And there's an asterism, which is a nice V, which is the head of the ball. And you've got the bullseye, which is the star Aldebaran, a nice red one. It's actually going to pass through that, and you're going to see loads of stars disappear and come back as the moon goes through. Quite a cool thing to see, especially in the new year if you're up. The actual star Aldebaran, the really bright one, will disappear behind it. You can see it with the naked eye, you can see it with binoculars. It's around about 1am, so at that time you may be seeing double, but you never know. Have a look. 
45 minutes later, it'll pop out the other side. It's quite cool to see. And then you can stumble off to bed. But <laughs> if you're not in bed and you're still going in the morning and you're up to see the new year in, best way to see it for me, see the new year in with the planets. If you're up, you'll see Mars rise, Jupiter will rise, and Mercury will also pop up as well. So while you're there, you'll see that Jupiter is actually fast approaching Mars. So they're getting quite close. So later in the, in the new year, they might actually get close enough so you can see them together. But yeah, twilight hours, pop outside, see the new year in with some planets, and uh, always drink responsibly, but enjoy the new year. And uh, that's all from me for this year. And just have a great time. And I'll see you in 20... What are we into now? 2018. But yeah, that's everything for me that's going on in the sky. Well, Ross, always awesome to have you on the show. And all I can say is, um, especially any of your guys that are listening in from the UK Astronomy Group, have a great Christmas. And yeah, we'll see you as the, the new year turns over. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have a January one ready for you. Excellent. <laughs> One thing we forgot to mention there was the fact that at this time of year, UK astronomy get inundated with people asking them what is the best telescope or whatever for their kids for Christmas. Well, they have teamed up with the Tring Astronomy Centre to suggest packages that will do a great job. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go and check it out for yourself. It's been really good teaming up with uh, Ross and UK Astronomy, and uh, it's a nice addition to the podcast, isn't it? It is nice. It, it's like over here we would have, well, it was called Star Hustler, and uh, it was the same kind of thing. It ran on PBS for a long time, and it was all about what you could see just with the naked eye, just go out and take a look, or with a telescope or something. <laughs> so it's it's nice to have that same kind of situation here. And uh, we look forward to working with Ross in 2018 and uh, seeing what we can produce from there. And someday I will get over there to meet him. <laughs> yeah. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So, John, I think it's about time we started wrapping things up. Uh, especially now that we're getting close to Christmas. Uh, Sorry, yeah. that was a really bad one. <laughs> that was awful. I don't care, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> one more show to go and uh, then it will be Christmas. That's true, we do have one more because we, we finally have to do our bit for Crypcon. Yep, we certainly do. And um, <laughs> the editing part of that's already started. This is a bit of a challenge for us, but um, a challenge that we've enjoyed taking on because it's such an important event to cover. There's a lot of things going on. It's not just an audio edit. So there are a lot of things going on behind the scenes so that in the spirit of what Cripcon was all about, it can also be read by people who are hard of hearing and, and so forth. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, but we will get it done. That show will be available for you guys for Christmas Eve. So thanks to you, John, for coming on board as usual. Hey, thanks for putting up with me for four years, you sad man. <laughs> and to Ross and all the crew at uh, UK Astronomy. And also everyone out there listening, thanks for putting up with us all. And we shall speak to you all again at the end of the month. Toodles! 
Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. If you want to get in touch with us, or click on the social media, and uh, now you got me started. <laughs> <laughs> There's a blooper for the end for you. <laughs>